Well, good morning, church. So glad you're here today as we continue in our series called The Church Defined. And if you're new with us today, just want to give you a little bit of background as to what we've been talking about. And if you're like, The Church Defined, what, is, what does that mean exactly? Uh, we've been going through the book of Titus in the New Testament. And a little background there is the Apostle Paul that wrote most of the New Testament, wrote this letter to Titus who was a young evangelist that he had left behind on the island of Crete on one of his missionary journeys and had said, I want you to start these churches and here's how God wants church to be, the church defined. And that's what we've been talking about over the last several weeks. So if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. If you're like me, your, your Bible just falls open to it, right? I mean, we've been in here for, for several weeks. Um, as always, you are invited to follow along on your phone in the Oakwood app. Or if you have a tablet, iPad, you're well, uh, you are uh, invited to follow along. Uh, just download the Oakwood app and go to Sermon Notes. And all the notes and all the scriptures and all the bullet points, all that will be there for you. Our goal this morning is that you would allow God and his word to work in your heart and in your mind. Because God wants to do some work there. Maybe it's to change something, or, or maybe it's to encourage you in some way, or maybe it's in, in some way to, to give you a, a gentle type of rebuke, but something God has for each one of us this morning as we gather. And so we want you to hear from him this morning. Let's begin with the text this morning, uh, Titus, uh, again, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And it says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Did you catch that? The grace of God has appeared, that's in Christ Jesus, and it offers salvation to all people. It's a good reminder for us that the gospel is for everyone. Jesus Christ died for everyone. Everybody has the opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ, to call him Savior and Lord. He died for all people. Verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, which is what? It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from what? From all wickedness and to do what? And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul gives us some instructions in this passage, and I want to begin this morning by saying these are difficult to follow. It's hard to live a holy life when the whole world around you is unholy. But nonetheless, with the power of God's Spirit living in us, we too can live holy lives pleasing to God. So let's begin there this morning as we uh, jump into the, the sermon notes. The first thing is this. We need to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We need to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. Says they're right there in the text. And the Bible speaks really kind of in three categories on what are worldly passions. One preacher, friend of mine, one time said uh, the way he put it, it was he called them sex, silver, and status. Those are the three categories sex, silver, and status. And let me explain better what I mean. If you look in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says this For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, That'd be sex. 
The lust of the eyes, that would be silver, and the pride of life, that would be the status part, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We can label these things worldly pleasure, material possessions, and human pride. And if uncontrolled in the life of believer, they will eventually enslave us into demanding habits that will constantly pursue them. Do you know of anyone, can you think of anyone that pursues worldly pleasure? Can you think of anyone that constantly is pursuing material possessions? Or maybe can you think of someone who struggles with the pride of life, the human pride? You see, it's especially difficult to say no to these things when the world strategically is saying, hey, you need to pursue these things, these worldly things, to have fulfillment and happiness in your life. But let's break this down a bit. We are to say no to what? To inappropriate physical pleasure. We're to say no to inappropriate physical pleasure. You know that sexual temptation is rampant in our culture today. Provocative imagery is everywhere. Things that used to be banned on television, in movies, or in ad are all allowed today. Pornography is readily available anytime, anywhere, and many that are exposed to it find hard to turn it off. You might remember the Pope John Paul II. He used to have a line that he would say. He said, every hour in the United States of America is sex o'clock. I think he might have been right when he said that. But what do we do about this? How do we respond? Because it's interesting, the Apostle Paul actually he, he talks about this directly several times in Scripture. One of those places is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. The Apostle Paul has advice for someone who's trying to say no to inappropriate physical pleasure. And he says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And he goes on from there and says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've called him your Savior and Lord. That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you do not desecrate the temple where God's Holy Spirit resides in you. And so what does he say? What's his best piece of advice? It's the only time he actually says this in scripture, to flee. Do you know what that means? Run. Turn your back on that sexual temptation and run for the hills. Most of the times, when we come to temptation or come to these times in our life where we're fighting against sinfulness, the scripture says what? Armor up, go into battle, fight the good fight of faith. Here it says, when it comes to sexual things, run, flee. It's too much. Flee from sexual immorality and say no to inappropriate physical pleasure. The second thing, we're to say no to the overabundance of material possessions. We're to say no to the overabundance of material possessions. You, you have to ask yourself this question. When is what you have ever enough? Is there a point at which the believer says, you know what, I, 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 that's enough. I, I have what I need and, and that will be enough. Because everywhere you go, the culture screams at you to go buy. The mindset is to make a purchase. Because you might be happy, and you might be missing out on something. 
if you don't have just a little more. But this rampant pursuit of more is killing Christians and Christianity. When I was a, a youth minister, um, youth ministers play games, and I had a game that, I, that you know I played called uh, the Bigger and Better Scavenger Hunt. Has anyone here ever done the Bigger and Better Scavenger Hunt? Anyone here? One. Sweet. You're the only person. Oh, two. Okay, sweet. Two. Okay. First service had zero. Second service has two. So, man, I'm sorry you guys all had lousy youth ministers. I'll just start with that, that you guys didn't get to do the bigger and better scavenger hunt. And, and Jeremy, I'll teach you that game later. Um, anyway, <clears throat> bigger and better scavenger hunt. It was so much fun. So what we do is get a bunch of kids together. We break them into groups and teams, you know, five to ten uh, students on a team. And then we take youth sponsors. We put them on the team with the students. And what we do is we give them a paperclip, literally a paperclip, and say, you have an hour or you have two hours. I want you to go out. And I want you to trade this paperclip for something bigger and better. And then when you get the next thing, I want you to trade it for something bigger and better. And you trade the next thing for something bigger and better. And you just keep doing this. You keep this bigger and better scavenger. You keep going. And then you be back by the time limit. And whoever has the biggest and the best wins the game. Sounds like fun, right? Some of you are going to go play it tonight with your family. That's great, okay? Um, but so we would release them into the community. They could go to stores. They could go to houses. They could go to anywhere they wanted in the community. And so I'm in a little town of 1600 in Paonia, Colorado. Everybody knows everybody in that town. And so I released the students, about 60 of them, to go out on this bigger and better scavenger hunt. You would not believe some of the trades they made. This is, so, so bringing back at the end, I can't remember if it was an hour or two hour limit, it may have been a two hour limit, but they bring back, these are the ob, some of the winning objects that they got when they came back. One of them was a motorcycle. <laughs> now it was a dirt bike, it was beat up, but it ran. Now they didn't ride it in, you know, I mean the youth sponsors wouldn't allow that, but they loaded it in the back of the sponsor's pickup and brought in a motorcycle that worked. Paperclip to motorcycle, right? It's like, wow. One of the groups brought in a big screen TV. Now, this is in an era we now think of big screen TVs as these flat little thin things that weigh 40 pounds. No, this was enormous. <laughs> this was a big box thing. It had four wheels with casters on. I mean, this, this thing was huge. Now, I don't remember if it worked or not, but they, I mean, they traded it in for this large TV, loaded it in the back of a pickup. It took 10 students and two adults to unload it. I mean, it was, that, was, that was pretty awesome. I remember one of the teams... They traded their uh, paperclip in, and through, through all the trades, they ended up bringing in a mountain bike. Now, you may say, well, motorcycle, mountain bike. The mountain bike was legit, dude. I mean, it was a really nice mountain bike. And so the whole purpose of the game was bigger and better, right? Sometimes I think we buy into that. Maybe even Christians. We buy into the bigger and better scavenger hunt because we think we'll be the winner. If we get a, just a little bit bigger house, a little bit nicer Accommodations. If we just get a little, if we get that car that's just a little bit bigger, a little nicer, you know, a little newer, it's got like this feature that I really want. And we get on this bigger and better scavenger hunt. But what so many people realize when they do that is you get to the end and you thought you were the winner and it actually just leaves you wanting what? More. See, you're smart people. You know this. The abundant accumulation of more material possessions tends to be this black hole that just sucks everything in your life into it. And here, it is one of the ways that we're going to say no to silver. We're going to say no to this overabundance of material possessions. Now, I'm not telling you this morning that all purchases are bad and you should never buy anything new. And, you know, but let's admit that sometimes when it becomes our life pursuit, it takes us away from God and what God's intention is for our life. 
The third one we are to say no to, third thing we're supposed to say no to is human pride. We need to say no to human pride. This present age is always good at inflaming in us this status consciousness. We're always wanting the status. That's why you do status updates on your what? On your social media. Why? Because you're trying to make yourself what? Look good. Why? So you get likes. Look at me. Look at me. Like me. Don't you want to see me? Notice me? Don't you want to get to know me? Give me the thumbs up. Give me the like. Give me the comments. Bring it in. They, they, they've got psychological studies on this, folks. It releases endorphins in the brain. It can be a hook. It can be like a drug to some people. The status consciousness where we are pursuing these certain brands and a certain image in our life. And as Christians, we're called to check our motivation in this. Because we now live in a world where we'd rather be envied than esteemed. It used to be different. It used to be, well, I'd rather somebody esteem me than to envy me. But now, hey, I want everyone to envy me. Look at my status and not esteem me. And we wear the right clothes and we look the right way and we shop at the right places and we drive the right cars and we live in the right neighborhoods. And, and here it says that though we can't say no to all worldly possessions and some of those things, but we are called as Christians to say no. What does it say in the text? To worldly passions, to being passionate about these things. And it is possible for you to do that, not in your own power, but through the power of God's Holy Spirit being released in your life. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, puny, timid little spirit, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. Self-discipline. We've been talking about that for a few weeks, right? So we are called to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. What are we to say yes to? We are to say yes to godliness. We are to live, as it says in verse 12, what does it say there in verse 12? Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We are to have a real enthusiasm for doing things, righteous things, holy things, Christian things. And Paul tells us in verse 14, to, at the end there, to be eager to do what is what? Good. Sometimes we have to say no to something we love so that we can say yes to something we love more. We say no to something we love in this world so we can say yes to someone we love more in the person of Jesus Christ and allowing his Holy Spirit and his righteousness to work in us. Sometimes we have to say no. Uh, some of you were privileged to grow up in an era in the 80s where we had a president named Ronald Reagan. Anybody ever heard of Ronald Reagan? Any Ronald Reagan people in here? Yeah, people are amending Robin, Ronald Reagan, right? It was, a, it was in a time, for some of you youngins, there was a time and a season where politics weren't so abrupt and, and, and weren't so angry. Um, you could have debates and you'd still walk out of the room shaking hands and a smile and feel like you could be friends. But Ronald Reagan had started a campaign because we had a growing uh, problem in our country with drugs. If you grew up in that time, now I was just a young, young child in elementary school at that time, but I remember the campaign of just say what? Just say no to drugs. That was the campaign. Very clever. <laughs> just say no to drugs. What President Reagan did was he actually had a bunch of his aides and the people that were working for him. He actually had them come in and do a training, and he sent them out to high schools that were at high risk throughout the country. One of those high schools he sent them to was a high school in the inner city of, of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And while this presidential aide was there, they do like an assembly. And so there's like a thousand students there. 
And the presenter, this, this presidential aide, is down there on the floor of the gymnasium, and they're all gathered around, and he says, I need the strongest and one of the smartest students in the school. I mean, if you're just buff and strong and you're smart, you think you're super sharp, and he's like, I need you to volunteer. About 40 high school boys, seniors, you know, jumping up and down, raising their hand. He picks a guy. Guy comes down. He's like six foot four. He's muscular. He, you know, he's, he's, he's looking like he could be the, you know, the quarterback of the football team. He looks like a super popular kid. He can, brings him down front. And he says, hey, he says, you know, I, I want you to know something. He's like, if you will do what I'm about to ask you to, to do, I'm going to give you a couple things. First of all, we're going to let you be principal for the day tomorrow. You'll be principal of this school. You'll run this school. And everybody's like, ooh, you know. Because the other thing is I'm going to give you $1,000. Ooh, and you know, the crowd's, you know, going crazy. And he says, this is all that you need to do. I want you to strip down naked right here in front of everyone. And the guy's like, dude, I'm not. I'm not doing. Yep, just, just strip on down. And he goes, I know it's kind of a silly ass, but that's what you need to do. He goes, you'll be principal for a day. He's like, I'm offering you power. You know, human pride, the pride of life would love this. You'd be principal. You'd be the top dog for the day. He's like, no. He goes, I offered you $1,000 cash. He's like, you're not going to do $1,000 cash right here if you just take off all your clothes. He's like, no, man, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And by that time, you know what the student body is doing? Take it off. Take it off. Take. They're chanting, you know. And, and, and so the speaker, the presidential aide, gets everybody calmed down. He says, I want to commend you for something. He said, I just asked you to do something really, really stupid. And you said no. He said, I offered you power and prestige. Did you be the principal of the school tomorrow? And you said, no. He said, I offered you money, financial, material. And you said, no. And then you just said no to all of your peers trying to pressure you into doing something stupid. And he goes, I want to encourage you because I think if you can do it in here, you can do it out there. So just say no to drugs. And the whole place erupted in, in, in clapping and cheering and everything. And the student got sent back up to the stands. That's what we need to do sometimes as Christians. We need to remember that we're just called to say no to worldly passions and worldly pleasures. That sometimes we just turn our back on those things and say, you know what? Those things don't matter. Those are not what Jesus wants for my life is these worldly pursuits. And folks, it's easy to do it in here, right? It's easy. You, 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 when you do it on Sunday morning when you're here in worship service, you're doing it and you're saying no here. Right? It's easy to say it in here. But here's the thing is, I think that you guys can also do it out there. God did not design you to follow him one hour of the week. He designed you to follow him 168 hours of the week, 7 times 24. Um, he intends for you to live this Christian life, to live holy lives, and to say no to worldly passions out there. And I want to encourage you this morning that you can do it with God's help, with the Holy Spirit living in your life. But what do you have to do? you got to yield your will to God. you got to yield it. So we need to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We say yes to godliness. And then he gives us some powerful incentives here. There's three powerful incentives for godly living that's insinuated in this passage here. And the first one is this, that we need to remember God's grace. Remember God's grace. Verse 11 says what? says that the grace of God, and then a little bit later, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all 
people. That's a powerful incentive to live a holy life. Jesus came into this world for the express purpose of dying on the cross for our sins and being the sacrificial atonement. Do you understand that? He paid the price for our sins. In verse 14 it says that he gave himself for us to redeem us all from wickedness. That we don't have to be sucked into wickedness and negativity and any of those things anymore. So when we remember and appreciate God's grace, we are motivated to holy living. Now I want you to notice how grace is spelled there. It's G-R-A-C-E with periods. It's something that this is how I like to describe grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, I didn't make that up. I read that somewhere, got that somewhere. But when we remember and appreciate God's grace, that Jesus paid the price for us on the cross, we are motivated to holy living. We look at what he suffered and died for and the power he had, greatest comeback story ever, right? The power he had over death to come back and resurrect gives us this resurrection life that we're called to live as Christians. And it's a powerful incentive to just remember Jesus died for you. Remember God's grace that you're not getting what you deserve in judgment because of Jesus Christ. So live for him. Uh, another powerful incentive is to understand God's purpose. To understand God's purpose. God's purpose is, look at verse 14, to purify for himself a people that are his very own. How can Christians look like his very own? To be different from the world. If we look like and act like and talk like and live like the rest of the world, there's nothing distinct about our faith in Jesus Christ. And here in verse 14 it says he came to purify for himself a people that are his very own. God wants us to be a people of holiness, distinctive and different and set apart from the world. I'm here to tell you this morning. When people see a loving marriage that even in the hard and rocky times are committed to stay together and to work things out. When people see disciplined children that don't only honor their father and mother, but honor other authorities in their life and are taught to love God, to love others, and to be kind. When people see honest, honesty and integrity on the job and in the workplace, we talked about that last week a lot, when people see the kind deeds of others, when people see a joyful spirit, even in the midst of horrible circumstances, they stand back and they say, Jesus Christ is alive in these people. And they're distinctively different from the world. Another incentive is to believe God's promise. We need to believe God's promise. This third incentive for holy living is our belief that Jesus is coming back. He's returning at any moment. Paul says that we should live rightly while we wait for the blessed hope. This is verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait for his appearing and we are to be prepared for when that moment comes. And folks, if you don't know, wake up. It's coming. It's coming soon. You see everything that is going on in our world points directly to the fulfillment of many scriptures about the end times. Think of it this way. If you were to get a notification today, hey, the president of the United States is coming to your house. Now, it doesn't matter how you feel about him. If the president was coming, you would want to prepare, right? 
you would want to prepare your house. You'd want to make sure everything's in order. And you might even, you know, like put on a suit to meet the president. I mean, if you knew that some other famous person was coming to your house, I want you to think about how you would prepare yourself. Maybe it's your favorite NFL star, your favorite singer, you know, someone, someone, maybe it's just someone that you highly admire and respect. Like this, this big name figure is actually coming to your house. You would prepare yourself because you know they're coming. Folks, Jesus is coming. And you have got to prepare yourself. We have to prepare ourselves and be ready for the soon return of Jesus Christ. It's weird for us to think and strange for me to think that we wouldn't be preparing ourselves every day for that time. And telling as many people as we can that great commission mission to be telling as many as we can about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Because when you realize that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming to your house, you begin to beautify yourself with holiness and righteous living. The first time Jesus came to this world, some people just barely noticed him. Oh, he did some miraculous miracles. But I'm telling you folks, the next time he comes, it'll be even more dramatic. And the Bible says that every eye will see The first time he came, he came in meekness. But the next time he comes, he will come in all authority because the Bible says that every knee will bow. The first time he came in love. The next time he comes, he will come in power. And all of his enemies, Scripture says, will be put under his feet. In Joel chapter 2, verse 31, the Bible talks about the end of the world. Speaking of this great and dreadful day of the Lord. But in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches that first gospel message there in Jerusalem, it's interesting because he quotes from Joel and he talks about the great and glorious day of the Lord. Do you hear the difference? It's the great and dreadful day of the Lord or the great and glorious day of the Lord. Listen. Whether that day that's coming for all of us is dreadful or glorious for you, will 100% depend on your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't get anything else right in life, get this one right. Because Jesus is coming soon, and it is your choice. It is up to you. Will you be under his wrath and judgment, or will you be under his grace and mercy? I think I know the answer to that. Do you want to be under God's wrath and judgment or his grace and mercy? Yeah, I'd sign up for grace and mercy every time. But if you are not under his grace, it will be a most dreadful day. But for those of us to walk with the Lord and keep the faith, it will be a glorious day of Christ's return. And then Paul gives us a couple of essential ingredients for holy living, a couple of essential ingredients. And one of them is this, that we are called to use our minds. Use your mind. Christianity is a thinking religion. And throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, we are called to use our brains. Look at verse 11. It says, the grace of God, and then it continues there in verse 12. It says, it teaches us. The grace of God, verse 12, it teaches us. We are told repeatedly throughout Scripture to use our minds. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 2.16 says that we are to have the mind of Christ, a mind like the Son of God. Because here's the truth. Right thinking leads to right behavior and then to right feeling. 
Right thinking leads to right behavior and then to right feeling. Uh, the great evangelist Billy Graham wrote a sermon one time, and it was called Facts, Faith, and Feeling. And he laid out in that sermon that the three go in that order. It's facts, then faith, then feeling. You see, the facts should be understood. That is the thinking part. And then we respond in faith. That's the behavior part. And then comes the feelings of security and goodness. Romans 12.2 puts it this way. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? 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 By the renewing of your mind. Because then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Everybody wants to know what God's will is, right? Because then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, his pleasing, his perfect will. You can know that in your mind if you allow him to transform the way that you think. The facts should be understood. We respond in faith and then comes the feelings. But I want to warn you this morning and say, hey, feelings are not the ultimate goal here. If we just operate in feelings, we are very shallow people. And shallowness can have a very dangerous effect on the world around us. And it can ruin our testimony as believers. Because when faith is based on a feeling, it falls apart when pressure mounts. When things don't go our way and, oh, I'm not feeling the Lord. I'm not feeling what the Lord is doing. I don't feel the presence of the Lord. The foundation is shaky because it's based on feelings and not the facts. The facts is that Jesus is God's son. He is the savior of the world. He is the Lord over all, and he is the cornerstone of your life, the bedrock of your faith. When you use your mind and you have the facts about who God is, what his grace means, and his love for you, and you respond in faith and obedience, that's the action step, then those right feelings will follow. It's an essential ingredient to living a holy life. Use your mind and yield it to Jesus Christ. And the last thing, and this one's probably a little tougher than the first. Another essential ingredient other than use your mind is to wait patiently. To wait patiently. Paul said that we are to live holy lives. And in verse 13 he says, while we wait for the blessed hope. While we wait for the blessed hope. Someone once said that maturity is the ability to postpone pleasure. Most of the time the pleasures that tempt us aren't maybe wrong in and of themselves sometimes. They're just at the wrong time or in the wrong context. Let's go back to sexual pleasure that we were talking about earlier. That is not bad. It's not bad. It is a gift from God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage only. But guess what? It takes a godly, mature, God-fearing person to wait on God's timing for it. And so we wait patiently because our world is impatient. We don't want to wait on anything, and the devil will use that against us. That's why we have instant coffee, folks. Did you know you used to have to put the granules in the filter? You put the filter in the, in the little cup plastic thing. You put it into the coffee pot, and then you hit go, and it had to percolate. It took like five minutes to get a cup of coffee. The Keurig has ruined us. We have instant coffee, you can have a hot cup of coffee in about 32.6 seconds. And we like the instantaneousness of that. Instant messaging. Oh, I can get a hold right now, right now. Middle of the night, boom. 
That message is there waiting. Instant message, instant oatmeal, instant pudding. I mean, we need to put that away. Cook and serve is so much better than the instant pudding, instant popcorn, instant banking, instant everything, right? We want what we want, and we want it now. But in the life of a believer, and according to Scripture, sometimes maturity and character and wisdom and holiness, those things don't come quickly. Those are a process as we love and walk with Jesus that he brings to us. And he says, hey, 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 wait patiently. Throughout scriptures, it says so many times, wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, wait patiently upon the Lord, and don't give up. And yet I find so many Christians impatient. But maybe you're in this season of waiting because God is teaching you something in the waiting. And it's not developed in you yet. And so you feel like, but I'm getting impatient. Wait patiently upon the Lord. There was a wonderful pastor at a little Christian church in Ohio, and his name was Glenn. And Glenn and his wife did ministry in that church for 40-plus years. And then the Lord just so happened that the Lord took her away just in an instant, had a heart attack, and died. And Glenn was very sad about his wife passing. He had been with her all of those years, and he was asked so many times by friends and members of the congregation, what do you miss about your wife? And he'd give all of these stories, oh, all of these wonderful stories about who she was and doing ministry together. If you, if you gave Glenn the eyeball test, you'd look at him and say, well, Glenn didn't miss a meal, so he must have had a wife that was, you know, a really good cook, and he did. In fact, one of the things, one of the memories he had of his wife, something that she would do to kind of, kind of you know, mess with him and flirt with him a little bit is sometimes when she cooked the big dinner, he'd finish the dinner, and she'd start clearing the table, and she would say, Glenn, keep your fork. Glenn, Glenn, keep your fork. And he loved that because he knew something better was coming, the dessert, because she made the most fabulous desserts. And he went on how she'd make pies and cakes and brownies and all kinds of things. And, and when he was preaching and talking about his wife at her service, he shared some of those things. And he shared the fact that his wife would always say, hey, Glenn, save your fork. And he said, you know what? I think she got it right. Because I think sometimes God is telling us, hey, save your fork because the best is yet to come. You see, in Christianity, our best days are always ahead of us, not behind us. Did you know, did you know that? As a Christian, your best season days are ahead of you and not behind you. I don't care what age you are. Because if you are in the faith, you have hope of eternal life with Christ Jesus, our Lord, in heaven. And hint, hint, I don't, I don't want to be a spoiler for the whole Bible, but if you read Revelation, in the end, we win. Jesus wins. He's victorious. And if you stay faithful, and you say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasures, and you say yes to holy living, even in an unholy world, folks, in the end, you win. In the end, you get the reward of being in the presence of Jesus. 
And there's nothing, nothing greater than that.